Good evening and welcome again. We are glad that you're here tonight and we're thankful for the opportunity to worship God. Thank you to Trent for reading our scripture today. We're grateful for the Bible reading tonight. And we're going to be looking at Luke 23 in our study together. We've been looking at key chapters in the Bible beginning first of the year we began this journey. Tonight we come to Luke 23. Interestingly, each of the biographical writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, present us a narrative about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Luke provides some extensive information regarding the cross and the dialogue that took place on the cross. And so tonight we're going to look at that in some detail as we think about the cross of Christ and the death of Jesus some 2,000 years ago. I want to begin tonight by calling your attention, first of all, to the condemnation. In Luke 23, as you well know, and we've looked at Matthew's account, the Lord Jesus was sold out by one of His own disciples, one of His apostles, Judas Iscariot, for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus was brought before such notable rulers as Pilate and then Herod and then sent back again to Pilate. Jesus also stood before the high priest, Caiaphas and Annas. And so in Luke 23, first and foremost, we think about that courtroom scene to understand that we're talking about a mock trial. They weren't interested in justice, but rather their interest was in putting to death the Son of God. And so in chapter 23, verse 1, we have the accusation. Note if you would. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King. Well, I would, I would acknowledge the fact that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Anointed One. He was the very one of whom the prophets of old had pointed. God's suffering servant. Isaiah tells us that much in chapter 53. Isaiah said that my righteous servant shall justify many, pointing to the Christ. But the accusation leveled here, false to the core, wasn't it? You remember back in Matthew chapter 21, we have an account of the Pharisees. And the text tells us that they were interested in entangling the Lord in His speech. They weren't interested in what He had to say. They were biased. They had rejected the Lord as the Christ. And so they wanted to know, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus perceived their wickedness, the text says. And so He asked them, or He said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and the things that are God's to God. In no way did Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, ever say, ever say anything that would have been insubordinate to paying taxes. Not one time. And so, we find the accusation made that He was forbidding to pay taxes. That was false. Wasn't perverting the nation. But He was the Christ, and He was and is today a king, isn't He? 
Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Pilate, in verse 3, asked him this question, Are you the King of the Jews? And the Lord said, It is as you say. Then in verse 4, the Bible says that Pilate said to the chief priest and to the crowd, I find no fault in him. I think it's interesting to note in this context that Pilate acknowledges the innocence of Jesus. Matter of fact, the text says he sent him to Herod. Herod also examined him and he found no fault in him. Well, how do I know that? Well, just note with me. Pilate had wanted to have an audience with the Lord Jesus. His intent was to see some miracle performed by him, according to verse 8. Verse 10, the Bible says the chief priests and the scribes, they stood and vehemently accused him. But note if you would. In verse 14, Pilate said to the chief priests, the rulers and the people, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I found no fault in this man concerning the things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod. For I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing worthy of death has been done by him. So the account says that neither Pilate nor Herod found anything justifiable in the actions, the deeds of Jesus. Not only did Pilate and Herod acknowledge his innocence, but the Bible tells us one of the thieves also acknowledged the innocent state of Jesus, as did one of the centurions, the Roman centurion, who said, truly this man was the Son of God, following his death on Calvary. So, the accusation, the appraisal was, there was nothing worthy of death in him, but the people cried out. Note, if you would, verse 21. The people said, crucify him, crucify him. Their intent was to see the Lord Jesus hang upon a Roman cross just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happened. Pilate tried to pacify the people. They wouldn't hear of it. Sought to release him. They, of course, asked for Barabbas and eventually he let them have their way. So in verse 32, the Bible says there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. So first, the condemnation, but now, really for the bulk of our study, I want to talk about the crosses. Because in Luke 23, there are three crosses on Calvary. Matthew tells us that they took him to a place called Golgotha, the place of a skull. And there they crucified him. Luke says when they were come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals or the malefactors, some translations may say, and the thieves, one on the right hand and the other on the left. There were three crosses on Calvary on that day. The central cross was occupied, as you well know, by the very Son of God the one who was the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Christ, the anointed one. 
On that central cross, we have what I believe to be the cross of redemption. A man who was dying for sin, for the sins of the people. Jesus was on that central cross. And the purpose behind Him going to the cross, as you well know, was because of sin. You remember Matthew in Matthew chapter 1 when he provides us with insight into the angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph in a dream and telling him about the virgin birth. The angel said to Joseph in the long ago, speaking of Christ, that his name would be called Jesus and he would save his people from their sins. Jesus would talk about his earthly ministry and the purpose behind coming to earth. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to save the human family. The Hebrew writer says in chapter 2, verse 9, that Jesus tasted death for every man. So we find Jesus on the cross of redemption. A man dying for sin, for my sin, for your sin, for the sins of the world. I like the words of Paul when he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Him who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Matthew details the treatment that Jesus endured on our behalf. Imagine if you can being welded to a cross as Jesus was. And being lifted up, and yet Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all people unto myself. Two thousand years ago, Jesus died on Calvary, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. His death is just as meaningful today as it was two thousand years ago. We still pay homage to His sacrificial death every first day of the week, don't we? Reminding, reminding ourselves of the body that was given in our stead. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about the blood that was shed for us by Jesus. That blood was innocent blood, as Peter would say, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. John the Baptist acknowledged that much. When he saw Jesus on one occasion, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Identifying Jesus as the Son of God. And so Jesus paid the ultimate price for our sin. To understand that behind the purpose of the cross was His deep passion for the human family. Just a few minutes earlier, Brother D.O. and I were talking about being motivated to serve the Lord out of love. I would encourage you to read the New Testament and you'll find that what ought to motivate us to serve the Lord, to worship the Lord, it ought to be about love. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. And John said in 1 John 4, 19, we love Him because He first loved us. To understand something about the depth of the love of God. We wouldn't even be having this conversation if it weren't for the love of God. Paul said, God spared not His own Son, 
God gave His very best. As we say sometimes, the best of the best for the worst of the worst. That would be us. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And wasn't it Paul that said, but God commends His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul would write in Galatians 2.20, speaking of Christ, that He loved me, that He gave Himself for me. That's personal, isn't it? Until it becomes personal, you'll never, you will never quite fathom the genuine love of God. God has loved us. He has declared that love over and over again. He has demonstrated it by the sending of Christ to Calvary, the golden text of the Bible. It is golden because of what it says. Jesus said, for God so loved the world. That's inclusive of everyone. We are all, we are all redeemed or have the opportunity to be redeemed because of the blood of Christ, the love of God. Do you really think Jesus would have gone to the cross if He didn't love you, if He didn't love me? Was it not Peter that said that Christ bore our sins in His body on the cross, that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness? To know that Jesus vicariously suffered, bled, and died for my sins. Sometimes we talk about getting down, on, getting down on our knees and giving thanks to God for our blessings in life. We ought to get down on our knees and thank God for what happened at Calvary, for the love of God, for the love of Jesus. Didn't Jesus say, John 15, greater love has no man than this, than a man laid on his life for his friends? Reconciliation is a result of Jesus dying on Calvary. He reconciled us by the blood of His cross. He redeemed us by His blood. And so Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. No wonder Paul would preface that by saying, To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved. We have a relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. He is that one mediator standing between God and man. So how grateful we ought to be. The purpose behind the cross, it was to save. The passion of the cross evident in Jesus going to Calvary. I said a few weeks ago, and I'll say it again. If you think Jesus was held to the cross by three nails. I'm here to tell you, that's false. The Hebrew writer said that Jesus endured the cross. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him. Why? Because He understood the end result of His death. Redemption. Reconciliation. The hope of heaven. We have that tonight because of the one who paid the price on that central cross, the cross of redemption. The man who was dying 
for our sins. How grateful we ought to be. And when you read Matthew all the way to the Revelation and go back and look at Genesis and trace Genesis forward through Malachi, ultimately it all hinges around one theme, that is redemption, salvation. God's interest in us. And God loved you. He loved me. His interest and His investment in us. Incomparable. You will never find anyone that loves you more than God or the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, in our study, as we think about the crosses of Calvary, you have that cross of redemption. The man who was dying for sin, but then the text says that there were also two criminals or thieves or malefactors. One man was dying as a rebel, the cross of rebellion. Here is a man who is dying in sin. I can't think of anything worse to acknowledge the fact that there are people who have died and who will die in sin. In the fate of those who die in sin, Jesus said, you remember John chapter 8, except you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. And Jesus would go on to say, if you die in your sins where I am, there you cannot come. So here's a man dying. Dying in sin. Listen now to the record. In verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke says they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offer him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then, of course, that inscription written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. But now look at verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Here was a man blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was dying for sin, not just for sin, but for his sins as well says something to us about the enormity of sin. The Bible talks about the deceitfulness of sin and the fact that those who choose to live in sin pay a heavy price. The destructiveness, the damages that come as a result of a life of sin. Think about this. The two criminals that were being put to death one on either side of Jesus. They were being executed by way of capital punishment. For what reason? For crimes they had committed. They were simply receiving, as one of the thieves would say, their just reward. When people choose to live a life of crime or when they choose to live a life of sin, 
Sin is a heavy taskmaster. And you remember Solomon said, the way of the transgressor is hard. Is that not reflected in our text? Here is a man that is paying for a life of crime, a life of sin, a life of willful sin. There are so many people in our world today that have been deceived by the devil. The devil is doing everything within his power to destroy to damage, to disrupt the lives of people. And I must say, he's done a great job. He has a lot of folks in his camp. He has done tremendous damage to the human family. We are the crown of God's creation. And yet the devil has been in attack mode since the garden, has he not? And Peter said the devil walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I have no, no idea of knowing at what age this man Began a life of crime. The text doesn't tell us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. None of them have anything to say about their life of crime, when it began. But this man's paying a heavy price. And here's Jesus dying on that central cross. And He is paying the ultimate price for the sins of the human family. And here's a man that ought to be thinking about getting his house in order. And he's blaspheming the very Son of God. And he is saying to Jesus, if you're the Christ, he was the Christ, he is the Christ, he is the Son of God. Sin has the ability to blind people, doesn't it? Sin blinds and sin binds. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. And then, of course, Jesus would say that those who commit sin are the bondservants of sin. They become enslaved to that way of life. The danger of choosing to live a life of sin, sometimes you can go so far, stay so long, you can't come back. Let me give you a passage to chew on this week. 2 Peter chapter 2, and about verse 14. Peter said, having eyes full of adultery. Now listen to what he said. That cannot cease from sin. You mean to tell me that I could reach a point of no return? That's exactly right. So here's a man dying in sin. Cross of rebellion. There's a third cross on Calvary. Again, Luke said, when they came to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified Him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. The third cross, the cross of repentance. Here is a man dying to sin. One man dying for sin, another man dying in sin, a third man dying to sin. Let's note the narrative. Luke gives, a, gives us a glimpse into the dialogue that takes place between these men on the cross. When the one criminal said, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us, the other answering, the Bible says he rebuked him. Initially, they both reviled the Lord. But 
as time went by, one of those thieves began to soften. He began to see in Jesus something very special. And so listen to what Luke says. This man said, do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation. Now note, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. In other words, he's saying, look, we're here because of crimes we've committed. We're guilty. We are dying because we are worthy of capital punishment. But note, this man, speaking of Jesus, has done nothing wrong. What says a, says a lot about him, doesn't it? Says something about the tenderness of his heart. And Jesus, during his earthly ministry, had a lot to say about that honest and good heart. So he said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. You ever wondered, how did he know anything about the kingdom? You know, sometimes we assume, we assume certain things when maybe we don't really have the full record. When John the Baptist began his earthly ministry, do you remember Matthew said in chapter 3, verse 1, that he began preaching in the wilderness of Judea? His message was that of repentance. Why? Because he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't you think a lot of people had the opportunity to hear something from the words of John as he preached, as he taught from place to place? And then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, the Bible says that when Jesus began His earthly ministry, He echoed the very same message. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord Jesus had a lot to say about the kingdom of heaven. In Luke 17, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven comes not with observation. Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to the apostles, didn't He, in Matthew 16, 19. So the idea of the kingdom of God and the kingdom coming was on the minds of many, many people. Possibly He heard John preaching. Maybe He had heard something about the preaching of Jesus with regard to the kingdom. So He said, Lord, remember me when, you're, when you come in your kingdom. And then what did Jesus say? Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Let me just pause here for a minute. I know that there are a lot of folks that you talk to, that I talk to, that we talk to. As we discuss matters pertaining to salvation, oftentimes they'll bring up the thief on the cross. And they'll say, what about the thief on the cross? As if it would justify not being baptized into Christ. Let me just call attention to a couple of matters. Number one, go back to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew said with regard to the preaching and teaching of John that those in Jerusalem and all Judea and around the Jordan came to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan confessing their sins. Who's to say that this man had not been baptized at the preaching of John the Baptist? Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I don't know. But that's something to think about. A second thought is, you remember in Mark chapter 2, Jesus said 
but that you may know the Son of Man has authority or power on earth to do what? To forgive sins. We're not just talking about any man. We're talking about the Son of God here. Jesus had that power. Did Jesus have the right, the authority, the power to forgive this man of sin while on that cross? Yes, He did. Third thought. The third thought is to remember the covenant under which this man died. You see, what a lot of people want to do is they want to talk about the thief on the cross, but what they're doing is trying to compare apples and oranges. You can't do that. The thief died under the Mosaic law, did he not? What law are we under today? Oh, we're under the law of Christ, aren't we? You see, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, Hebrews 9, 15 through 17. The fact of the matter is, Jesus commanded baptism for salvation, Mark 16, 16. Today we're under the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2. It's called the law of liberty, James chapter 1, verse 25. It is the law of liberty in James 2, 12. That's the law under which we live. And so the Great Commission still reads, Go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Bottom line is simply this. This man died under the law of Moses. It's a different covenant. Jesus assured him. The plea was, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And the Lord promised him, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise being the abode of the righteous in the Hadean realm. On Calvary, there were three men dying. One, one man dying for sin. One man dying in sin. Ultimately, he would go to a place of torment. But the other man, dying to sin, would be with the Lord in paradise. Luke 23, in my estimation, is just a magical chapter because it offers us hope. You can read the continuation. Jesus dies on Calvary, dies for the sins of the human family. Joseph of Arimathea, a good man, a just man, asked for the body of Jesus, and he was buried in a tomb to rise three days later. The message of the cross is a compelling message. I realize my time's gone. Time gets away. I want to ask you tonight, go back 2,000 years ago. Put yourself on one side of the Lord. The Lord Jesus had His hands extended to both of those men. One man reached out and touched the Lord, figuratively speaking. The other man said no. Pilate asked this question, What then shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? You have to decide what you will do with Jesus who's called the Christ. Those thieves, they had to decide. And you have to decide.
If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, is there any reason at all why you wouldn't be baptized this hour? Is there one valid reason? I can't think of any. When Saul of Tarsus met the Lord on the road to Damascus, for three days he prayed and fasted. When Ananias came to him, he said, And why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. If you haven't been baptized into Christ, you need to arise and be baptized this very hour. Paul said today's the day of salvation. If you're here tonight and you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus as the King of Kings, and you haven't been baptized for the remission of sins as Peter acknowledged on Pentecost Day, Acts 2.38, then you're not a part of the church, the kingdom of God. And you can't be saved outside the church no more than you can be saved outside of Christ. Our plea to you tonight, make it right. Do what the Lord has set forth in Scripture. If you're unfaithful, you've tasted the blessings of salvation. You've been there, but you've left the Lord. Why not come home tonight? Why not leave here tonight set free from sin? Go home tonight, right in Christ. Could we pray with you and for you? You know, John said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Come as we stand and sing.